Okay, let's turn to 1 Samuel chapter 18. First Samuel 18. We're going to cover the first 14 verses today. Um, so, let me jump into it and then we'll pray. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. What a beautiful line. Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him. So that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of the people and all and in the sight of Saul's servants. That's like Saul's administration. The people that are advising him. They're like, good thing to put David in charge. And as they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel and singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry. And this saying displeased him. And he said, they've ascribed to David ten thousands and to me they've only given thousands. What more can, they, what more can this kid have but the kingdom itself? And Saul eyed David from that day forward. And the next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul and he raved within his house while David was playing the, the, the lyre. And he did this, and David played this day by day, and Saul had his spear in his hand and Saul hurled the spear for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him. This happened twice. Saul was afraid of David, actually, because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people, and David had success, and all his undertakings for the Lord was with with him. And this is the word of the Lord. Jesus, would you please, Holy Spirit, guide us through this amazing scripture I pray that you'd speak to us about what this means for us and what this means about following you and our own formation and spiritually. I pray that you'd bless this study and that you'd lead it, that you'd guide it, and that you'd speak to our hearts through it. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we've launched into a study of the life of David. And uh, come to find out, I, I don't know how I had missed this before, but as I was studying for this this week, I learned that um, the life of David is the longest narrative of any person recorded in any ancient literature. Did you know that? No other writer in antiquity spends more time on, on a character than the Bible does with the life of David. Really important then. It must be really important. Um, 
I want to suggest to you today some reasons as to why that is. I think this, this text and the life of David in general tells us the reason why God decides in his word to spend so much time on the life of this young man, David. First, we have to remember always that the life of David points to the center of God's redemptive plan for all of mankind. It is a, it is a pointer to the centerpiece, the foundation of God's redemptive plan for all of humanity. That's, so God really spends a lot of time focusing on the life of David. Which means what God is doing in the life of David, where God is leading David in some very important ways points to what God is doing in humanity and also points to what God is doing in your life and the way God is leading your life. Okay? David's very important. Secondly, the life of David also shows us how God is doing this, how God is, is moving in your life, and how we can participate and partner with him. Something that only God can do is what he's doing in your life, but we can partner with him. We can participate with him in that. Okay? So number one, those are the two points we're going to cover today. So, yeah. Want me to repeat them again? Say, say it one more time. Sure. Um, a couple words is David shows what God is doing and David shows how God is doing it. What he's doing and how God is doing it. The life of David shows what God is doing and how he's doing it. First, what is God doing in David? Or I think probably a better question to set this whole thing up is what is God repairing in and through David? What is God fixing in David and through David? This is the 30,000-foot view. We have got to pan out and place David in his proper place in the redemptive story. A lot of people will, and this is fine, there's nothing wrong with this, but a lot of people will focus on this particular passage only, and we will. But first, we've got to show we cannot forget where David's life is in the big story, in the big picture here. David, we know, primarily is anointed to be king, right? That's the sum up of David's life. He's heading to be king. He's anointed to be king. And importantly, redemptively, through the Davidic dynasty, there will come the king, Jesus Christ. That's why David's really important. That's the, a really great way to sum it up. David is anointed to be king. He's setting up a, David, a Davidic dynasty that, through which would come the king, Jesus Christ. But what is, now we have to ask, what is this Davidic king, Jesus, what is he coming to do? What has he come to do? And for that, we need to pan back the camera and go to the locus of the problem of humanity, right to the wound, the wound, the one wound, out of which all the other wounds and hurts and things that we're going through are just mere symptoms, there's one strike, one wound that is causing all of this. First, let, let me read to you Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. This is about you. This is about me. Then God said, let us make man, that's us, mankind, in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air. Rule is a royalty term. Okay, it's administrative, over the livestock, over the earth, 
over all the creatures and all the, the moving on the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them. So humanity is made in the image of God, made to rule, and we are blessed. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Okay, from Genesis chapter 1 comes the great Christian anthropological idea that all human beings, every human being on the planet has worth and dignity because we are all made in the image of God, imago Dei. That's what that means, the image of God. And there are two, um, there are at least two dimensions to what this, to what this means. Um, the imago Dei is both a noun and a verb, okay? On the one hand, it's a noun. That means that somehow humankind is not just made in the image of God, we are the image of God. That's what that means, okay? Um, in other words, and there's a lot of debate about what even that means, but it at least means that on an ontological level, somehow in our essence, the essence of who we are is the image of God, okay? The word image, I've told you this before, in Hebrew is the word selim. Um, it's, it's a really simple word. It refers to a statue that has been carved in the likeness, that's the word demuth, the likeness of, some, of a person. It's a statue that's been carved in the likeness of a person. That's as, as simple as it gets. Um, in other words, a statue that's made, to, to, that's made to be an accurate likeness of somebody else. That's who we are. We are somehow in our essence, ontologically, the way you are, the way you look, the way you function, something about what makes you human is an accurate image of God himself. And this isn't just seen individually. More importantly, the Bible almost always speaks in corporate terms. It speaks in individual terms. But there's always a, there's always a, um, all of humanity type of a, there's a communal type of an idea to this. We together, as humanity, as humans, as a human community, are image of God. Not just made in the image of God, we are image of God. Therefore, we respect everybody. We love people. That's why when, we, when you see someone walking down the street, if you're walking in your neighborhood or walking around Green Lake or whatever it is you're doing, you, Christians, we smile and we say, hello. You want to know why? Because we say, you're made in the image of God. I'm going to acknowledge your presence. You're precious. Hello. Hi. I see you. I notice you. Fellow image of God. Right? Okay. Secondly, though, Imago Dei speaks of our function. It's a verb. In other words, we are not just the image of God, but we are to image God to the world. Okay? That's a function. We're to image God to the world. We were made to be with God in a worshipful relationship so that we can rightly image him to the world. That's the idea. We spend time with God in his presence so we know him so well that when we go out, we can image him well. We can image him to the world. We can say, this is what he's like. How do you know? Because I spend time with him in Sabbath day worship rest. 
I spend time with God. I know God. As image of God, I know him. Now I can image him to you. I can image him to all the, to all the world. Right now, Adam and Eve are where? Someone say Garden of Eden. Yes, you're right, Garden of Eden. They're called to go out from there and Edenize the rest of the planet in a sense. Okay, Eden is like a cosmic temple where the God's presence is. The rest of the earth, they're called to go out on mission and image him to the rest of the earth, bringing God's shalom, his peace, his kingdom. I want you to hold on that word. The kingdom and the rule of God to the, all, to the entire planet. That's humanity. That's what we're made to do. Okay? Now, here comes the break. When Adam and Eve sinned, when they decided to disobey God, in some catastrophic way, the image of God, listen, was not revoked or removed from you. You are still image of God. You can read about that in Genesis 6. Still calls them the image of God even after the fall. James chapter 3 calls us the image of God even after the fall. We are, we are the image of God, but we can no longer image God as a verb. <laughs> the image of, we, can no, we are the image of God, but we can no longer image God because of sin. In other words, sin catastrophically makes us use our image antithetically to what it's for. Instead of imaging God, we now are going off like the, like, the, like the 70 nations in the Tower of Babel. We're now in our image imaging ourselves. We were meant to focus on and to center on God and each other. You know, remember what Jesus said? To love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor as yourself. That is the great human purpose. Love God, love others. Instead, we and that's what we were fashioned to do, Instead, we use our ability and our great power as image bearers of God, we use that to image ourselves and our own image at the expense of everyone else. That is the tragedy of sin, and that is the tragedy of what's going on in our world. We are no longer welcome in God's presence. So we can't image him rightly because we don't know him anymore. We're not with him anymore. We're not allowed in his presence, broadly speaking, anymore. Uh, and because of that, we no longer care for our neighbor outside of what they can do to meet our own ends. Outside of how we can manipulate people to get on top. Okay? So that is, so that forms, that brief summary forms the plot of the Bible. The plot of the Bible is God transforming mankind back into his image. That's what's going on. The Bible is God forming mankind, moving mankind back into his image, into his presence so that we can image. We, ha we are image of God, but we've been marred. Irre, 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 irre something, irrefixably. Irrevocably, thank you. Irrevocably so, we cannot, because of per, sin pervades every part of our lives. Okay? Doesn't mean we're completely as sinful as we could be. It means sin has pervaded every area of our lives. Okay? So, that is what, and so, here you go. Listen, tune in. That 
is what God is doing in you right now. You need to know that. If you wonder, what's God doing in me? What's the purpose of my life? What's the plan that I'm on? I'll tell you. God is transforming you back into his image. That's what's happening in you. Promise. I can say that with biblical authority in many different ways, in ways that are personalized to you. God is moving in your life for the end purpose of making you more and more into his his image. But what is that? Let's get more specific with that. Well, that's where David comes in. That's where David comes in. David has been chosen and anointed to set up a kingdom. Sounds like image of God. To set up a kingdom. And from this kingdom will come a son of David who will become the king and he will inaugurate what will eventually become a universal kingdom of God that will redeem the whole earth. That's where we're headed. Okay? Let me, let me, let me read that summary again. David's been chosen anointed to set up a kingdom. From this kingdom, the son of David will come, the Messiah, Jesus, and he will inaugurate a kingdom. He'll start a kingdom. He'll become king um, that will eventually over uh, uh, redeem the entire planet, redeem the earth. That man is Jesus Christ. And the New Testament tells us again and again and again and again and again, I mean over and over and over again, that this Davidic king by the way, who Samuel's mother prophetically called Christ in 1 Samuel 2, verse 10. She prophetically named a Christ, a Mashiach, would come, anointed king, from, she didn't know, but from the line of David. Jesus Christ, the, the New Testament tells us over and over and over again that Jesus is the image of God. Jesus is the image of God. Let me just show you. This is Colossians chapter 3, verses 15 through 17. It says, he, that's Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn, not Adam, Jesus, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers, that means cosmic stuff, spiritual stuff, um, uh, authorities, spiritual authorities over different places, all of that came from Jesus um, and authorities. All things were created by Jesus and ultimately for Jesus. Listen to this. He is before all things, including Adam and Eve. He is before all things, and in him all things are being held together. A lot of theology packed into that. In fact, because of this verse and Acts chapter 17, verse 26, where Paul is talking to, he's in Athens, and he says, from one man... One man, he, God, made every nation of men. We usually translate that to mean Adam, right? We, we, we might be right about that. But um, second, uh, second century church father Irenaeus believed that that actually was Jesus. In other words, Irenaeus would say, Adam was molded from the mold of Jesus Christ. So if you, if you, Irenaeus would say, if mankind, if you picture mankind like a family tree, 
and the trunk would be Adam and Eve, and under the under the, the surface of time and space, under history, before that all began, is a root system known as Jesus. That's what Irenaeus taught, and he believed. I don't know whether he's right or not. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. But what is undeniable is the New Testament's declaration over and over again that Christ is the image of, is the image of God, the true image of God, and his followers, you and I, are being gradually, progressively transformed into his image. So I'm putting purpose to your life here from the Bible. You're being trans, you are being, right now, you are being transformed into the image of Christ. That is the goal of your life. Yeah. Uh, uh, Acts 17, verse 26. You and I are being transformed into the image of Christ. That is the glorious goal of your life. That will happen because God has declared it so. And now, it's, and now it is happening. You're in the process of it happening. Let me, read you, let me uh, read you a few verses that confirm this. This is 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we, Paul says, who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory. You are being, right now, transformed into his likeness in ever-increasing glory. That's what's going on with you. That's what God is doing with you. Uh, Ephesians. This is Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12. He's to prepare God's people. So he says, um, I'll back up a little bit. He's given the church apostles, Teachers, elders, evangelists, he goes through this list of people. Why? Why? To prepare God's people for works of service. Why? So that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature. We're growing to become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. That's what's going on. That's why we do church. That's why we're here. Right now, we're here, and the deacons, the elder board, me, we are trying to structure this place so that you and I, we can all have a community that is growing and maturing more and more into the image of Christ, both individually and corporately. That's what's going on. That's what's happening. Um, I got one more for you. This is Colossians, back to Colossians chapter 3, 9 through 10. You have taken off your old self and its, with its practices, listen, and you've put on a new self, and what's with this new self? Which is being renewed. Again, this is the progressive tense in the Greek. It's being renewed in the knowledge of the image of its creator. Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ, the image of Christ, is all and in all. The new man, when you became a Christian, you were given a new uh, life. You were born again. And just like you know, when Noble was born, we had this little bundle peanut, this little kid, that in him had all this potential to be something that we had no idea what he was going to be. 
But we knew in this kid is soccer, is a love for turtles, is a uh, future maybe engineer, is someone who's got a funny sense of humor. Who's, we, he, and, and before us, he's been growing into what he, he's new, but he's not done. He progressively grows into it. That's what's going on with you. When you were born again, you were given a new man that is now from knowledge, from glory to glory, being grown up into this incredible potential. That's what's going on with you into the image of Christ. That's what's happening. That's what God is doing in your life. Promise. That's what he's doing with me. Promise. Did you, do, do you ever wonder what God wants for you? Maybe you don't get an answer from God because you're focused on career or what school to go to or where to move or things like that. Those are, those are important. But God, through those things, his goal is to conform you to the image of his son. That's what's going on. That's what's happening. Okay. God is actively molding you into, into the image of his son. And this has profound implications to the way we look at life. People tend to think that the image of Christ is something alien to humans, to human beings, okay? But we found this back in Genesis, okay? The image of God, Imago Dei, or Irenaeus called it Imago Christi, in the image of Christ. People think that the image of Christ is something alien to human beings, something strange that God wants to add on to humanity, right? Something imposed on us from the outside once we become Christians. But in reality, when you look at the whole biblical data here, in reality, the image of Christ is the fulfillment of our deepest hungers of what it even means to be human. The Bible's answer to what it means to be human is Jesus is what it means to be human. It's not alien to you. This is fulfilling what you, what you need. The greatest thirsts of our soul are actually, even though we fill them with all sorts of other things, thinking that that will work, the reality is the real thirsts of our soul is crying out to be made into the fulfillment of humanity, which is Jesus Christ. That's what's happening. That explains all your desires, all your thirsts, all your wants, all your cravings, all your goals. Everything in your life goes back to this this innate desire, whether you know it or not, skewed by sin, but it's still there. This desire, I want to return to Eden. I want, I want to be made in the image of Christ. Okay, so there you go. Well, great, Mike. Fantastic. Major rabbit trail. What does this have to do with the story of David? Actually, it's not a rabbit trail. It has everything to do with the story of David. Everything. See, prophetically... David fits into this piece prophetically. David has been anointed to image, to image a future king. Think of that role for David. David doesn't know this. David is not just called to be king. He's called to image a future king, a king that people would look forward to after, since him after, until this new king came. Someone that would be like David, a future king. And it would be the king of kings. And now... Here's the point. To get him to that point, it, take, it takes a process. David could not be immediately uh, made a king. It took 20 years. 
He was anointed king, declared to be king, anointed king by Samuel in chapter 16. But now there's a 15, 20-year process of making David into not just any king, but a king that rightly images the king of kings. And this is the story of that process. That's what this is. David is to be an imperfect yet genuine likeness of the king of kings to come. And that makes the story of David extremely valuable to, to what's going on in our lives as I, as I hope to show you. You like David, you and I like David, and because of Jesus are meant for royalty. You're meant to rule and reign. It's covenant partners with the king of kings. That's what we're called to do. God is making you into the king's image. That's what he's doing in you. He's making you into the image of Christ, which means we are, as, as Peter calls us, we, you and I are a kingdom of priests. That's what he's making us into, a royal priesthood. But you're not there yet, right? You're not there yet, are you? Um, you are called to be, and you will be, because he's declared it. You will be, but you are, you are in the wilderness right now. Right now, you and I are in the wilderness, and God is using what's going on in your life right now to make you into what he's declared you to be. I want to, you need to understand that. God is making you right now, through what you're going in your life, he's making you into what he's declared you to be. This is, um, theologians call this inaugurated eschatology. Inaugurate, in other words, the kingdom of God has been inaugurated, but it has not yet been consummated. In other words, we are in a process. You can see this in Romans. Um, let me just show you this. I wish I could put my phone on the screen. Can I not, probably not do that? No. He's like, no, Mike. The answer is no. Well, I'll just read it to you. Romans chapter 5, I think it's verse, oops, verse 8 says this, pay attention, I'm going to ask you a question. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore uh, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, uh, we, were made, we were reconciled to God by, by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his, by his life. Uh, I, am I in the right spot here? I think I am. Where did it go? Let me go down here. Maybe it's down here. I'm not in the right. Oh. Hold on. One second. When in doubt, ask Google. Um, oh, is that what it is? Oh, that's why. You're like, go back to school, Mike. Maybe another year. Let's see. Okay, it's chapter eight. Yes, thank you. Smarty pants. For those who live, for, okay, here's the question. For those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, um, their minds on things of the Spirit. 
Oh, it's here. I know it. No, no, no. I want it. There's, there's two of them, though. Google? Oh, that's why. <laughs> Bear with me. Okay, here it is. I found it. Four, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption. Let me ask you, what tense is that in? You have received the spirit of adoption. It's present tense. Yep, right. So we are adopted, right? Let me go down here to verse 23. I think, I hope it's verse 23. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly, here we go, as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons. What tense is that? Future. So what is it? Are we adopted or are we going to be adopted? Yes. The answer is yes. <laughs> the answer is, this is what we call inaugurated uh, eschatology. You are, it's like David, he's been anointed king, but now he's going to be made into what he's been anointed to be. Um, okay, so Noble recently has been into turtles, sea tur uh, aquatic turtles. And we ordered one online. You can actually, they send them in the mail. And um, he saved up his money for a year to buy this turtle the size of a, I mean, really, it's this size. It's a little baby, a little hatchling. And they sent it in a box in the mail. <laughs> and Noble paid for it. When we were in California on a vacation, we called them. He paid for it, and it was his. He had a turtle. He bought a turtle. But did he have it yet? No, but it was his. But there still was a process of it being sent to us in the mail. And now he's got, but for a while he had one that he had not yet had. He, ha he, ha he was a turtle owner that he had not yet met the turtle. That's the idea. We are, as Christians living in this age, we are in the already and the not yet. We live in this weird spot where Jesus on the cross and in the resurrection became king. He became king. He inaugurated his kingdom. And then he told his image bearers to go into all the earth, and we're back to Genesis, and sh share the gospel wherever you go, right? Bringing it to its consummation, the ultimate resurrection. That's what's going on. That's redemptively what you and I are doing. And this is shown in the life of David. David was anointed king, but now there's this grueling process to make him so. To make him that. It's going to happen. But this is what it takes. To so how does it happen? How does he do this? How, does, how is God forming you? How is God forming you into the image of his son right now? Well, um, according to the story of David, this work is, number one, a work of God, not of David. In other words, David is not in control of this process. This is going to bother you. I promise you. This will bother you. If, you. if you live in America, in the Western world, the fact that you're out of control of your own spiritual journey will bother you. Okay? That's number one. Secondly, um, it's a process. This is going to bother you. If you live in America, in the Western world, the world of instant gratification, where I can forget a verse and whip out my phone and find it just like that on Google, 
or I should have just asked Richard. But if I, but I, you know, I have instantly, I can find, I remember I was actually studying for this and, and last night I was going so fast, so stinking fast studying for this sermon, f- finishing it up. We're getting ready to go on vacation. And I remember thinking, man, I'm going fast. And I thought, you know, I don't know why I'm going fast because back in the old days, I used to have to, I used to have to go, where was that? Oh, no, not there. Where was they? I didn't have the internet. I had to search an actual book and turn actual paper and scroll with my eyes to find it. It made study time so much longer. (laughs) That's not how it, I mean, that's not, so our spiritual formation is not like that. It's a process. Okay, and finally, it takes other people. You're not going to like that. That's going to bother you. If you live in America, in the Western world of individuality and who you, you are not going to like that you cannot grow into the image of Christ apart from a community of other people. Okay, number one, the story of David is the story of a man being molded by God. The story of David is the story of a man being molded into something he's been declared to be by God. In fact, everyone, let me just say this. Let me point something out. We like to focus on David, and we should, but I want to point something out. Everyone in this story is given the opportunity to be molded spiritually in some way. Everyone is being molded spiritually. Jonathan is being molded. David is being molded. Saul is being molded. We were just talking about this this morning, uh, Victoria and Eric and I were talking that human beings by nature, did you know you are not static? You are dynamic. You are growing. And, and what I mean by that is five years from now, you will be different than who you are today in a lot of ways. So my point is, we like to think of spiritual formation or discipleship as like an add-on, something that we, you know, if we choose to go the next level, we could choose to add on sanctification and spiritual formation. Where the Bible would say, no, 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 you are being formed. You are being formed spiritually. Um, Dr. Robert Mulholland puts it this way. It's a long quote, but he just says it so well. He says, we fail to realize that the, pro- the process of spiritual shaping is a primal reality to the human existence. You ready for this? Everyone is in a process of spiritual formation. Here we go. Ready? Every thought we hold, every decision we make, every action we take, every emotion we allow to shape our behavior, every response we make to the world around us, every relationship we enter into, every reaction we have towards the things that surround us and impinge upon our lives, all of these things, little by little, are shaping us into some kind of being. Think of that. Everything. We are being shaped into either the wholeness of the image of Christ, that would be David and Jonathan in our story, or horribly destructive caricature of that image. That would be Saul in our story. 
destructive, not only to ourselves, but also to others, for we inflict our brokenness upon them. This wholeness or destructiveness radically conditions our relationship with God, ourselves, and others, as well as our involvement in the dehumanizing structures and dynamics of the broken world around us. We become either agents of God's healing and liberating grace or carriers of the sickness to the world. Woo! We become either agents of God's healing and liberating grace or carriers of this sickness to the world. The direction of our spiritual growth infuses all that we do with, with intimations of either life or death. Let me tell you this. No one put this better than C.S. Lewis. Listen to C.S. Lewis. Every time you make a choice, you are turning the central part of you the part of you that chooses into something a little different than what it was before. And taking your life as a whole with all your innumerable choices, all your life long, you are slowly turning into this central thing, either into a heavenly creature or into a hellish creature, either into a creature that is in harmony with God and with his fellow creatures and with itself, or else into one that is in a state of war and hatred with God and with its fellow creatures and with itself. To be the one kind of creature is heaven. That is, it is joy and peace and knowledge and power. To be the other means madness, idiocy, rage, impotence, and eternal loneliness. Each of us, at each moment, is progressing to one state or the other. Wow! See, it's not just David that is turning into something in this text. Although the narrator emphasizes and is focusing on him because it leads, he leads to Jesus, of course. But everyone in the story is. David is turning into a king. Saul is turning into a monster. Jonathan is turning into a great, humble man. Everyone's being formed here. So, okay, so we're being formed. Secondly, we are being formed. This phrase speaks of two things. Someone else is forming you, God, not you, if you're in Christ. And two, it's an ongoing process. For David, he has been anointed king, but like I said, it's going to take 15 to 20 years for him to be installed. And certainly, David would have wanted to be installed immediately, right away. But God was in control of the pace, not David. This is very frustrating. Very, very frustrating. Um, we enter into this world almost from the start vying for control. This isn't even just a Western thing. It's a human thing. We want control. Can we get our parents to give us what we want and when we want it? I mean, that's almost as old as we are allowed to think. We start manipulating our parents to give us what we think we want and when we want it. Can we get our playmates to play our way or will they control the way we play? right? Us with little kids, we know this is true. Can we control situations and others to fulfill our agendas or, or will we let them manipulate us into serving their agenda? That's a power struggle. It happens on the corporate level. That happens in all relations. It happens in families. 
Can we create enough of a security system in our lives that we're able to control pain and suffering and the adversities that come in life? Can we control it enough? Can I be healthy enough? Can I have a retirement? Can I, can I control the damage that's going on around me? Again, Dr. Robert Mulholland, and he's got this great book called Invitation to a Journey. In it, he calls the culture that we're in, he's got a great title for our culture. He says, we are in an objectifying or objectivizing informational functional culture. An objectivizing informational functional culture. An objectivizing culture is one that views the world primarily as an object out there to be grasped and controlled for our purposes. That's what that means. The world and everything outside of me are objects for me to master and control so that it serves my growth and my purposes. But, he goes on to say, we are also an informational functional culture, meaning that we seek to possess information, whether that's knowledge or whether that's practice or whether that's techniques, right? In order that we might function more effectively to bring about the results that we desire in the circumstances of our lives. So when it comes, in other words, we seek to be totally in control of the process of our growth. Go to a Barnes & Noble or go to Amazon Books and seek out personal growth. You'll find techniques, five steps, 15 steps. You'll find different Programs. That's why we go looking for therapists, the right church, the right books, the right reading of the Bible, interpretations, and this and that. And that. Why? Because we think if I can just master the information, if I can just, I'm the subject, and if I can control the objects, including the information and the techniques, and I put the quarter in the spiritual formation vending machine, then out will pop the image of Christ. I'm in control of this. We tend to look at spiritual formation like a static possession in our world of instant gratification. And it doesn't work that way. Being formed spiritually into the image of Christ, in fact, is the great reversal of this. We see from the life of David, David was not in control of his life. God was. God was bringing Saul into his life and Jonathan into his life and God was bringing David into Saul's life and into Jonathan's life and God was bringing Jonathan into all of this. God was working through people and through time, a process. Being formed spiritually into the image of Christ is one of absolute surrender. And the name of the game there, if you, it, it, what we are supposed to do is simply, and yet very difficultly, simply just to get out of God's way and allow him to do it. The, how we participate with what God is doing in our lives is just to turn our, our, those areas that are closed-fisted areas and to pry them open and allow God access to them. That's why Jesus said, follow me. That's the idea. We're following Christ in every one of those areas of our lives. My point is, spiritual formation, though it is an act of God, it does not just happen. We are to, Galatians 5, we are to walk in step with the Holy Spirit in this process. Here's my point. God is not a SWAT team that will, 
boom, break into your heart and take it by force and you will, you will become in the image of Christ. No, God, according to Revelation, is someone who persistently knocks on the door of your heart through confrontation, through conviction. He's not going to break it down. Um, you know, behold, I stand at the door and knock. That was not written to non-Christians, by the way. That was written to a church. It's written to Christians. Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. Whoever comes to the door, I will, then I will come in. The more, what's, our, what's our part? To say, okay, come on in. That's so easy, yet so hard, right? Simple, yet profoundly difficult. And that's why it takes time. That's why it can take so much time. But being formed spiritually... Um, the image of Christ is not a static possession. Secondly, according to our story, God, and this is, um, if you didn't like the first two, there's a process and that God's in control of it. This, the the uh, second point is that um, he uses others to accomplish this. God, in fact, this is the way God is doing this in your life. God is using David here to bring out the deadly envy in Saul. He's using David to show Saul what's the ugliness that's inside of him. God is using David to humble a mighty man in Jonathan. I mean, really what this story is about is two perspectives towards God's anointed David, Saul and Jonathan. Saul resists and a monster, he's made into a monster. Jonathan humbly complies and is made into a great man. God is doing all the work, but one, one doesn't resist, and one does. God is using Saul to take the Saul out of David. That's a great line from a book um, that I couldn't remember the title. I looked all over. Google did not help me. But there's a title of a book where the author just compares David and Saul, and there's this great line. I read it so many years ago, but the line that I remember is, God was using Saul to... to excise the Saul out of David. That's what he's doing. So, here we go. A great litmus test for how you're doing on the road to becoming more like Christ. If you want to know how you're doing on the road for you becoming more like Christ, this hurts me too, is to simply examine the quality and nature of your relationship with others. Are you more loving, more compassionate, more patient, more understanding? Because these are all the, this is all the characteristics of Christ found in the Bible. More caring, more giving, more forgiving than you were a year ago. And if you can't answer that, what would the people that know you the best would say? How are we doing? See, here's the thing. Jesus inseparably joined loving God and loving others together. They cannot be apart. Remember what he said in Matthew 22, 37 through 40? He said, this is the great commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the other one is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. He was, he was galvanizing those two together, saying, these will not be separate. Um, John, the apostle, 
uh, puts it even more poignantly. Listen to what John the Apostle says. He says, the one who claims to be in the light and yet hates others is still in the darkness. In other words, you cannot say that you love God and yet hate somebody and yet be at odds with your neighbor. That does not, that is an alien concept in the Bible that does not work. The two, the one flows out of the other. How you are doing with your neighbor, how you're doing with the grudges, how you're doing with bitterness and resentment and wrath is a direct reflection to your relationship with God. You cannot separate them. You cannot live biblically in the space where, well, my relationship with God is going good, but my relationship with my spouse, that needs work. No, 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 no. You need to understand the two are connected. When I have issues with Nicole and Nicole has issues with me, I need to understand that's a litmus test to know something's off with my relationship with God. He goes on, the one who loves others abides in the light and is, and is not a cause for stumbling, but the one who hates others is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know the way because the darkness brings blindness of outlook. This shows, basically, this shows us where Saul is at with God here. How Saul is with David and what's coming out of Saul because of David shows us where Saul is at with God. And God had a hand in, bring, and God had a hand in bringing this out of him. Did you notice verse 10? Where it said uh, Saul got an evil or hurtful spirit from God? What's happening there? We, we, we read that and go, oh my gosh, why would God send an evil spirit? God was stirring up this dynamic between Saul and David to show Saul what was going on. God might have been done with, David, with, uh, done with Saul as king, but he wasn't done with Saul as a person. In fact, if you read the life of Saul, there's so many olive branches from God. Even though he, you're not going to be king. You won't be king. But repent. Um, there is a temptation to think that our spiritual growth takes place in the privacy of our personal relationship with God. And then, once it's sufficiently developed, we can then export it onto other relationships and be Christian with them. That's what we tend to think. But listen, the process of being formed into the image of Christ takes place in the midst of our relationships. Here's what I want to tell you. Um, your relationships not only tell you, tell you where you're at in your relationship with God, but they are also the opportunity to draw closer and stronger to your relationship with God. They're both. They tell you where you're at. They inform you, not in a shameful way. Listen, not in a shameful way, but in a way to go, hmm, something's not right between me and God in an honest way. So you can come before him and you can, you can bow that unchristlike part closer to his image. You can participate. You can undo your hand to let him in. Okay? The process of being formed in the image of Christ takes place in the midst of our relationship with others, not apart from them. We learn to be Christ for others by seeking to be yielded and obedient to God in the midst of our relationships. I'm going to read that again. We learned, because I worked hard on this sentence, we learned to be Christ for others by seeking to be yielded and obedient to God in the midst of those relationships. Yes, we learn, no, no, that's great. I know, it's a mouthful. We learn to be Christ for others 
by seeking to be yielded and obedient to God in the midst of our relationships. So let me just play this out how it works. Um, Nicole and I get in a fight, which rarely happens. Only on a I like daily basis. So when, when something erupts in me, when I'm unkind, when I say something cruel or in the flesh, that is the very point of unchristlikeness where God wants to do his work. That's what he's telling me. Very practically, in that moment, I can know when I feel that ping in my heart of irritation or I want to I say a little sarcastic little gotcha type of a thing, I can know practically that's the unchristlike part of me that Christ is molding into his image. And what does that mean? It means crucifixion. This is what Jesus meant when he's talked, the whole talk about losing yourself. In Mark chapter 8, when he said, um, those, that wanna, uh, those that seek life will lose it, but those who lose their life for my sake and the gospels will find it. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about the part of your psyche, the self, that you want to feed to save, that unchristlike part. That's why I argue. That's why I say those things. I'm trying to keep that part of myself alive. He's saying that's actually the part you need to, you need to crucify by the power of the Spirit so that real resurrection life can come out. Yeah. Yes. It, uh, Michael just said it reminds, of the, reminds him of the spirit doing spiritual surgery. Yes, except without anesthetic because it hurts. It's super painful. In fact, the Bible would call it your cross. This is what he means by take up your cross. Jesus said it daily. He didn't say it once. He's saying... Not only is my crucifixion and resurrection an event that happens so that you can go to heaven and be with me when you die. That is true. But the crucifixion and resurrection is also the pattern by which you subject yourself to so that you can grow more into my image in the here and now. That's what it is. We live, scholars call this um, part of Christianity, a cruciform life. So when Nicole and I are at it, I crucify myself on the cross and I let the spirit bring new life to our relationship and that's how I grow and in that way Nicole is both the test of how I'm doing and the opportunity to do better to submit more of that to the spirit of God that's what's happening that's what's going on with Saul no doubt envy takes him over he becomes a murderous monster because of this, the envy that's going on inside of him. Because Saul is a man with a closed fist around that kingdom. You cannot have it. It's mine. And boy, I mean, envy is a serious thing. Aristotle called it, I think, one of the seven deadly sins. Uh, you know, we don't really talk about envy anymore because, by the way, our whole society is built on envy. Social media is built on making you feel discontent with your life and envy somebody else. It is extremely dangerous and powerful, and our society's running on it. Our discontentment, our want for more, 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 is fed by the fires of envy. And it, it absolutely eats Saul alive from the inside out. 
bringing the anointed into his life, David, who will have the kingdom, is an opportunity for Saul to be free, to let go, but he won't, and it, and it consumes him. Now, look, this cannot happen just once a week. This is what's so hard about being in Seattle. This is what's so hard about running a church in Seattle. This is what's so hard about running a church in any metropolitan urban center. And that is we have so many fragmented lives. Some of you have come from Tacoma today. Some of you have come from Renton. Some of you have come from uh, North Seattle. Some of you, uh, last week some people came from South Seattle. We go, we shop in different supermarkets. Our kids go to different schools. We have different jobs. We have different communities. Typically as a church, we only touch base on Sunday and then we, sh- we go out again. That is, it's a problem. Because we are meant, this process really works. This this Christ-forming process works through other people. Ideally, through us. Which is why we've got to do more. This is why we keep pushing for more time, more lunch, more picnics, more women's book clubs, more men's Bible studies, even or unscheduled events and organic things, like just call each other, get each other's numbers, and check in with each other every week as much as you can. Don't, if you are relying your spiritual formation on a Sunday morning, you are, you are, you are driving a Ferrari in one gear. <laughs> There's so much more to this community than that. Go to each other's houses, meet each other for coffee, do Zoom dates, get creative, be together. Why? Because God is shaping you into the image of Christ through each other. Through confrontation, through edification. How good it is to hear someone say, man, you're good at that. You're good at that. That's that's very human. We'll be at the park and all these kids are playing around every time. I, I, I could do a, a social experiment and you would watch it happen. We'll be playing at the park and Noble will swing on a swing or do something. He'll say, look, Dad. And I'll say, wow, buddy, that is amazing. You are such a good climber. And all of a sudden, there's another kid that I don't even know who's beside me. And I'll go, hey. And, he'll, and, and she'll go, I can climb even higher. And then another kid will come. One time, I read a book in like five hours. You know what they're they're like? Give me some of what you just gave your son. I want to be seen. I want to be encouraged. I want to be edified. We never grow out of that. We just learn to hide it. We all want that. And we we give it to each other. When we're here, someone in Christ to say, man, you're good at that. Or someone to say, what kids need are boundaries, right? Kids want us to say, no further. They want that because they don't know what's too far. They need direction. We need that too. Someone to say it in our lives, each other, not the pastor or the elder, each other. We're a kingdom of priests that come into each other's lives and say, hey, you're better than that. You know that. The way you talk to your, your son right there, I don't think that was right. Absolutely. We are our brother's keepers. Absolutely, Nicole and I need your help raising Noble. Absolutely, we need help. 
Okay. That horse is sufficiently beaten. So when certain people bring out the worst in you, God is giving you an opportunity to see what's in you and to bring it to him. Thirdly, I already touched on this. This is, the, I think, the last point. It's cruciform. It's cruciform. Logically, just think about this logically. This is just, just your logic. The front lines of the fight to mold you into the image of Christ are logically not the places that you're already doing well at, right? Logically, if you're being formed into the image of Christ, the assumption is there are parts of you that are not yet in the image of Christ. That's, that's what, so it's going to be a confrontive, exhorting relationship, okay? Transformation isn't going to take place at the, at the places that you're already doing well. God is present to us, and this is, what's, this is hard, but yet so beautiful. Think of the implications. This means God is present to us in the most destructive aspects of your nature. Uh, you know, like, like the Marines. I, they hear, you know, they say Marines, they don't run from gunfire, they turn and run at it. That is the, the nature of our God. God is not scared of your sin. In fact, I would be willing to say, theologically, God is most present in the places where you struggle the most. God is involved with us in the most imprisoning bondages of our brokenness, in your addictions, in your habits that you can't. That's where God is. Not in, we, we think we're going to meet God in church with our lattes when mm, everything's good. And we don't think that he's there with his robes off in a loincloth, scrubbing the shpoop off of our feet. But that's where he is. That was the lesson to the apostles that day. No, this is where I am. I'm closest to the dirtiest parts of your body. That's where I'm doing the work. That's where I'm doing my best work. God meets us in those places of our lives that are the most alienated from him. That's where he's at. That's the sanctuary of our God is in your brokenness. That's where he's coming. God is there in those places with grace, offering forgiveness, cleansing, freedom, and healing so that you can begin your journey again. You can get up, dust yourself off, say thank you God for your grace, and you can move forward again. That's why we take communion every week. So here's what this means. Our cross your cross is not that annoying person in your life that you have to deal with. That's not your cross. Your cross is not your spouse, no matter how many issues they may have. That's not your cross. Your cross is not your coworker who makes your job a billion times harder. Or the employee that makes you dread going to work. Or the employer that's just a slave driver and breaking all the laws. That's not actually your cross. Our cross is the point of our unlikeness to the image of Christ. That is where the cross is found. The cross is found at the point of our unlikenesses to the image of Christ, where we must die to self in order to be raised to God. That's where it is. So the process of being formed into the image of Christ takes place at the points of our unlikeness to Christ and you won't know what those points are without other people. That's the formula of, that's what this chapter is about. 
God's making David through Saul. There would be no King David without King Saul. You married people, your marriage is not so that you will be happy. Did you know that? Your marriage is so that you will be holy. You know that, that changes everything about your marriage relationship. Your spouse is not to make you happy. God is using your spouse to make you holy, which means they will bring things out on you that you will be powerless over, that you have to bring to God or hang on to and turn, on to more, turn into more of a monster. Without the Davids and Jonathans and even the Sauls. Okay, so finally, none of this process will work unless you see that Jesus did it for you. I mean, this is very brief, but it's the whole thing. Jesus, the son of David, listen, took the throne of his father, David, by doing what Jonathan does in this story. Did you notice that? Jesus, the son of David, became the king, took the throne of his father, David, by doing what Jonathan does in this story. See, ultimately, this story is about two reactions to God's anointed. Saul becomes a monster. Jonathan becomes truly a great man. He was already a stud bucket. If you, if you go back a few chapters and you read about Jonathan, the guy was not weak. He was kicking butt and taking names. He was, the, he was amazing. But look what happens here. In the very first part of our chapter, it says, as soon as he finished speaking to Saul, look at the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And, here, and Saul took him out that day, would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. Now look what Jonathan does. Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him. You know what that meant? It meant he abdicated the throne to David. The robe was a symbol of authority. Jonathan was the heir to the throne. He was the next one to be king in Israel. And in those days when you abdicated a throne, the symbol was you took off your robe and you draped it over the throne. And that was the symbol of the king is left. He's abdicated. That's what Jonathan is doing here. He's saying, I see something. Jonathan saw something prophetic, eschatological in David. He realized, no, 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 this is the way God's, God through you is taking redemptive history somewhere. I'm going to take off at great cost to myself, take it off and let you have my throne. And then it, he goes even further. It, it says his armor, and even the Bible marks the remarkableness of this. It says, and even his sword. You don't want to know why? Because when you... In those days, you did not give the rival to your throne a sword unless it was through their belly. You killed with the sword rivals to your throne. Jonathan takes out the sword, turns it over, and hands it to him in an act of great vulnerability. David could have killed him. You know the scenes when, uh, if you've ever watched a, a timepiece movie, when, when another army finally makes it the army surrender? And the, cat, the general goes out, and what does he do? He takes out a sword. It's a humbling thing. He basically says, you've won, and he hands the sword. And it's a very vulnerable thing. You could kill me with my own sword. That's what Jonathan does here. Don't you see Jesus in this? He's the rightful Davidic king, the one the prophecies 
have said will always come with the power of God to inaugurate a, what will be a universal kingdom. But instead of taking the throne in power and victory, Jesus pulls a Jonathan. He humbles himself. He strips himself. And he makes himself killable and vulnerable. In essence, in essence, Jesus takes the sword and gives it to humanity and says, do what you will. And we killed him so that we could have the throne that we don't deserve. That is the king we serve. You will never be able to do that in your own life with other people unless your heart is lit on fire with the fact that Jesus did that for you. Until you are, your heart is broken and blessed over the fact that God, that Jesus, the rightful king, stripped himself and gave you the sword by which you slew him and ran him through so that you could become king. Until you understand and your heart is broken by that, you won't be, you won't be able to actually pull off a cruciform life when you're, when you're with other people. It flows, remember what we said? Our relationship with others flows with our relationship with God. What's our relationship with God predicated on? Jesus crucified for us. If God sent his son and died for me, how can I not lay down my, my life for my spouse? And if I'm not, and sometimes I don't, it's showing me the areas where I'm not quite enjoying the love of God for me yet. It's an opportunity for me to come back to the cross and not try harder, but no, come back to the cross and let my heart be overwhelmed by the love for me, a sinner. It's the kindness of God that brings repentance until it's overflowing in me and I can go to Nicole and say, even though I don't think you're right, I still love you and I'm here, I'm here, I'm here for the best. I'm here, for you. I'm here to invest my, my, my whole life in you. I'm here to put my love into you. I'm here to put my dreams into your dreams. I will crucify what I want for what you, for what God's doing in your life. I can't do that until I realize that he gave up his dreams for me. And that I was his dream. You see? We're out of time. Let's stand up. That's my conclusion.